Well, we're going to be in Matthew in a little bit. We're, we're in the home stretch of Matthew, and the, the climax is coming. The tension is ratcheting up. And whether it's movies or books that we read or sports, uh, the drama gets higher and more intense when the adversaries get closer to colliding at the end. So you, know, you might be watching a movie where Luke Skywalker is fighting... Darth Vader or, you know, Harry Potter is coming into conflict with, yeah, not Hermione, come on now, what are we talking about, jeez, Voldemort or um, the blessed San Francisco Giants are coming into contact with the Dodgers, yeah, it's almost baseball season, I had to throw that in, so in any case, when adversaries clash, that is when the drama gets higher, and that is where we are heading uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus and his adversaries are, are we're going to see them a lot in the tension uh, coming together here. Now, this, this clash between Jesus and the, his enemies should not be a surprise to those of us who read the scriptures foretold long ago in the pages of the Old Testament. Uh, the Psalms begin with Psalm 1 saying there's a way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Now, these different paths are not like two paths in the forest that run different directions and never meet again. Rather, uh, the way of the righteous and those who choose the way of the wicked come into, uh, you know, battle with each other. So Psalm 2, when we get to the second psalm, it speaks of the battle between Christ and his adversaries. And I want you uh, to hear this because it's going to set the table for these parables that we're going to look at in Matthew today. So this is a good time. Uh, if you will, stand with me and honor uh, God's word being read. So again, we're going to be in Matthew in a second. Keep your finger there. But listen, just listen to the words of Psalm 2. It begins like this. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. Now the voice shifts in the psalm to the voice of God's anointed, his Messiah, who says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now the voice changes again to the voice of the narrator, the psalmist, who says, Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. So, Psalm 2 gives us both a, a strong warning, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, and a, a word of promise and invitation. 
Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And I want you to keep in mind both that strong warning and word of invitation as we make our way through uh, our section in Matthew today. Now, when we get to Matthew chapter 21, where we're going to start off in, in a moment, verse 28, it is Tuesday of Holy Week. Two days before this, Jesus, the king, uh, son of David, has ridden in uh, to the city of David as the anointed one of God, the Messiah, the Christ. And he came with loud uh, applause and cheers. The next day, he went into the table, flipped over the tables. You remember that? And caused a big uh, uproar. Now, here we are on Tuesday. In two days, he's going to be arrested. And on the third day, he's going to be killed. Um, so here we are, Tuesday. He is face-to-face with his adversaries, the, what it, they're named in verse 23. Uh, the chief priests and the elders of the people are coming to him. They've questioned his authority. We saw that last week. And, and today, Jesus is going to give three parables in which he responds to their questioning of his authority. He pronounces judgment on them and their rebellion against his authority. So that's where we're going to be. We're going to look at each one of these parables briefly and see if there's some, uh, some theme that ties them all together. So you ready? To, uh, chapter 21, verse 28. Look at it with me. Jesus tells these people, What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And the father went to the other son and said the same. And that son answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Now, which of the two did the will of the father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. So let's think about this parable for a moment together. Um, As a father of two sons, I can't help but read this story. A father had two sons. And think about all the times when the kids were small, I'd tuck them into bed and they'd say, tell us a story. And the story always began the same way. It was once upon a time, there were two boys named and they'd say, Josh and Zach, Josh and Zach. They wanted to see themselves in the story. And I want to say, Jesus, for them, uh, he is, what he's doing, he wants us to see ourselves in the story too. And the question is, where are you in the story? So the first son says, uh, he says, go work in the vineyard. And he basically just says, nope. And then changes his mind and ends up going. The second son, notice that he has, his answer is very respectful. He not only says, I'll go, but he calls his father by a respectful term. The ESV says, sir. Uh, the Greek word is kyrios, which is the same one that is uh, translated Lord uh, when we speak of uh, many other places. So he says, on my way, Lord. But he doesn't go. Which for the reader of Matthew's gospel may remind you of Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. So that being the case, as a dad... 
you know, I honestly wouldn't want a son who is openly disrespectful or blatantly disobedient. <laughs> uh, but the question here is, which one did the will of the Father? And the answer is clear. And Jesus lowers the boom and, and he, he interprets the parable by, by connecting the dots between the sons and the people who are listening to him. He says, uh, the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, well, they are like the first son, aren't they? The first son are those who start off poorly or look, seem disobedient, but they change their minds. They repent. They go the other direction. And he says, this is what the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. Their first response was not obedient, but they came. And in the language of Psalm 2, they came to kiss the son. They submitted themselves to Jesus. But the rulers of the people who are standing there before him, well, they are like the second son, are they not? They look and sound pious. Uh, They look good, but they don't repent. They refuse to submit to God's anointed who is standing right before them. They have not believed in the one he has sent. Now, do you hear the warning? The warning here is repent. Kiss the son, submit to, this is not a romantic kiss, this is a kiss of submission to a king. Kiss the son, repent, give your life to him. But there's also an invitation embedded in there as well, is there not? If the tax collectors and the prostitutes had, had repented and come and were accepted by Christ, well, the invitation is there for us too. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We can also turn at any time and come to Jesus and be accepted by him. So before we run off to the second parable, let me just give you a moment to pause and again ask the question, which son are you like? Where are you in this story? Is there any any area in your life where you've offered a polite, yes, Lord, and then have ignored his directions and his commandment and have gone off your own way. Well, let's look at the second parable together, shall we? Starting in verse 28, uh, starting in verse 33, rather. Jesus, standing before the same group of adversaries, gives parable two. Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and, and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, the landowner sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let's kill him. Where am I? Let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? So there's the parable. What comes after is a little response, but let's think about this parable together. This is kind of an allegorical parable in which each of the characters in the story has an identity, right? So in this parable, the vineyard 
if, if you read the Old Testament much, it, it will very clearly, like in places of like Isaiah chapter 5, who does the vineyard represent? Israel, I heard it. Good. So the vineyard is, is the, the nation of Israel. Uh, who's the owner? I heard it, I think. God, thank you. Okay, good. Um, owner's God. The tenants who, who he leases out the field to care for the vineyard and bring out fruit. Who is that? These are the, the, the leaders of Israel, right? They've been, they've been given authority and uh, responsibility, so forth. So the servants that he sent out to remind them that they are to be bringing fruit to God. Who are these people? These are the prophets, right? And they're the first set of prophets and the second set of prophets. And then finally, there's the son, which, of course, is not Ralphie. Just seeing if you're paying attention. <laughs> now, you're, you're, okay, you're still with me. Okay. Um, so we got Jesus here is the, the son. So um, look at verse 40 again. He tells this parable. And in verse 40, he says, what will the owner of the vineyard do when he, he um, comes to those tenants? And they said to him, this is the, the elders and the chief priests, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Now, as I read this this week, I thought, how interesting. This sounds a lot to me, feels like, uh, when David, King David, was confronted by the prophet Nathan after he took Bathsheba, somebody else's wife, to be uh, to sleep with her, and then he killed her husband. You remember Uriah? And, and Nathan came, and he confronted David, but he told him a story, a parable, if you will. Do you remember the parable? He, he told him this story about a rich man who had thousands of sheep and uh, herds, and this rich man had a guest that came to him uh, at night for, for a meal, and rather than take one of his own animals and prepare it for dinner, he went next door to a poor guy who had one lamb. And this lamb was beloved. He, he would keep, take him in his arms and feed, him from, feed the lamb from his own table. And the rich man took this guy's one lamb and killed it and made a dinner for his guest. And, and David, when he hears the story, flies into a fit of rage and he says, that man deserves to die. Right? It almost sounds like what happens in verse 41. Those miserable wretches deserve death. And Jesus says in verse 43, look, he says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruit. And Nathan the prophet, when he was standing before David, he said, You are the man. And Jesus here is saying to them, You are the people in my story. Now, so there's the story of, of the, the, the vineyard and the tenants. Let me ask you a question. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Where does that come from? Well, it's a quotation of Psalm 118. Uh, and then down in verse 44, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, does this sound out of place to anybody? I mean, we're talking about a vineyard and tenants and a landowner and son. There's no stones in the story. 
But Jesus, in interpreting his own parable, introduces these verses about a stone. Why? Well, let's think about this together. The first, in verse 42, when he talks about the stone that was rejected, that has become the capstone, the key cornerstone, this is a quotation of Psalm 118. It is Passover week as Jesus speaks. And this Psalm 118 was sung during Passover. It was very familiar. In fact, it was the very words that they chanted uh, in response to him coming in on Palm Sunday. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Where is that from? Psalm 118, same psalm. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, I am that king I am also the, the stone you are going to reject. You don't know what to do with it. It doesn't seem to fit in your plans for this building, but God is going to vindicate me and place me in the, the highest spot. Now, this stone gets referred to in verse 44 as one that is going to break uh, any in pieces who fall on it. It will crush people. Where does that come from? That is from Daniel 2. Daniel 2 is when the prophet Daniel comes before Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of Babylon, and and the Babylonian emperor, Nebuchadnezzar, said, I have a dream. Who can interpret it for me? The problem is he wouldn't tell them what the dream said. And only Daniel could both tell him what his dream was and interpret it. Now, in that dream, Daniel tells him, I remember, I know what your dream was. It was about a huge statue and this, this statue or idol had a golden head, which represented Babylon, a silver chest represented the, the kingdom of Persia, a bronze thighs represented the kingdom of Greece, and then some other empires, the, uh, the legs of iron and feet mixed with clay. And, and Daniel tells him about the statue in his dream, goes on to interpret it as this series of human empires and kingdoms. But the end of that that dream was of a huge rock that was not cut by any human hand that comes and smashes into the statue and and shatters it. And Daniel speaks to the king and he tells them of the meaning of this, this stone. He says this, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So the stone from Daniel's vision is the kingdom of God that will overtake all human kingdoms. The stone from Psalm 118 is something that's been rejected by humans and exalted by God. Now put these two images of a stone together. The question still stands, why does he talk about a stone with a parable that is all about tenants and a son and all that stuff? The answer comes in a Hebrew wordplay. It's probably why this, we don't quite understand the connections here. You see, the Hebrew word for son is the word ben. And the Hebrew word for stone is the word eben. It's just one letter difference. And so in drawing reference to the stone, Jesus is, is playing with the words stone and son. Now, N.T. Wright is a scholar that brings all this together. Let's see if this is helpful. Wright says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the top cornerstone. 
It wouldn't fit anywhere else in the building, but it will go in the place of greatest honor. And the stone will crush anything that collides with it. Jesus is the stone, the Messiah, God's anointed. He has come to bring into being the kingdom of God through which the kingdoms of this world will shiver, shake, and fall to the ground. And why is that an interpretation of the parable? Because the stone and the sun are the same. The stone, uh, the sun the farmers rejected is vindicated when the owner comes and destroys them and gives the vineyard to someone else. And the stone the builders rejected is vindicated when it goes in the place at the top of the corner. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus, he is telling a story about the people who are standing right in, in front of them. He's saying, I, I see what's going to happen. You are going to reject me. You're going to kill me, but God is going to vindicate me. And my kingdom is greater than any other kingdom that has ever been or ever will be. Mic drop. Boom. <laughs> Story is a prediction. And it also points to the importance for each one of us of honoring the Son of living in joyful submission to him. It's a strong warning against those standing right in front of him who will not pay homage to him. And there is also a, a hint that God is not restricted. This is such good news. God is not restricted by the stubbornness of the current tenants. He will give the vineyard to whom he wants to, a people who will produce kingdom fruit, fruit of lives of compassion and kindness and joy and love. So I want to ask you again, like we did at the end of the first parable, where are you in the story that Jesus is telling? Are you living a life of joyful submission to Christ the Lord? Are you bringing him the fruit of a life that seeks to honor him with every part of your life? Or are you bashing your shins against the rock of Christ, unwilling to acknowledge his authority? Are the words of Psalm 2 still ringing in your ears? Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The doors are open. Okay, we've got time for the one last parable, starting in chapter 22. You with me? We've been through two. Here's the third one. Jesus, again, spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the, the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid him no attention, and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers, murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out to the roads, and they gathered all whom they found, good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now let's stop there for a moment. Uh, as we did with the previous uh, parable, let's think about who these different characters stand for. So 
We've got the king in the story is God. Thank you. Uh, the son is Jesus. Thank you for not saying Ralphie. Um, the servants who he sent to uh, spread the word about the, the feast. Who are these people? These are the prophets again. Yep. Uh, the first guests who were invited who did not respond to the king's message are? Okay, these are the unresponsive Jews who are standing there before him. And the second set of guests, we said, go out to the roads, find anybody you can uh, bring, whoever will come. Who is that? Yeah, these are, these are the outsiders. These are the, the Jews who will respond and the Gentiles. This is the church. These are the people who respond to the message of Christ's kingdom. Now, this is a, an amazing story. I wish we had more time to spend on this story, but let me just briefly say, this is a story of extravagant joy, is it not? I love that the kingdom of God so often is compared to a party. God wants nothing more than to honor his son and share his unbounded joy with as many who will share it with him. But it's also a story of unthinkable refusal. I mean, the first set of guests, they just ghost the king. They don't even respond to him. And the second set is just brazenly uh, rebellious. And that leads to an inevitable judgment. Look at verse 7 again with with me. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. Most scholars take this as a prophetic reference to what was the judgment that was going to be coming on Jerusalem for turning their backs on Jesus. Forty years after that, in, in AD 70, the Romans came and they utterly destroyed Jerusalem. They razed the temple, uh, killed the folks, and it was just horrible. But judgment is coming. But fourthly, there, there's this inconceivable development in the story. Go out and find whoever you can find. Now think about this for a minute. Is that the kind of response you have when somebody won't come to your party? How many of you were at a Super Bowl party last week? Anybody go to Super Bowl? Now, if you're going to throw a Super Bowl party, pretend you think, I'm going to invite my friends to come to my house for the Super Bowl, and I'm going to throw a rager. It's going to be so amazing. I'm going to have Los uh, Arroyos cater this thing. We're going to have the gelato place downtown, bring in the, the dessert. I'm going to buy this massive big screen TV and bounce house for anybody with kids who want to come, and it's just going to be a party. And I sent out word to all my friends, and they say, yeah, we're probably going to come, which you know, you know what that means. And, uh, and then the day comes, and I've got all the food and send it out again. Everything's ready nothing, not coming. Uh, at that point, that's when I probably just cancel the party, right? But, but God is not that kind of host. He is not willing to cancel the party. He is a joyful God. So he sends out word again. And this time, it's like getting messages back about the Super Bowl party. Not interested. In fact, I don't even like you. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, that's probably the point which most of us are canceling the party, right? But God is not that kind of host, He keeps going out and finding anyone who will come because he is a joyful, generous God. He goes to the streets. He goes down to State Street. Who will come to my party? That's the kind of God that we have. Now, do you know the God whose generosity and joy will not be thwarted? This is the God of the scriptures. But there's an important addendum 
to this parable. Will you look at it with me? Starting in verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Wow, that's stark, is it not? So what does this wedding robe, this garment represent? I want to leave you with two different interpretations that I think are both pretty good interpretations and ask you which one do you think is what Jesus is talking about here. The first interpretation of this person without the wedding robe and what does this robe represent? Some would say the wedding robe represents God's grace. Not wearing it means that you are relying on your own works, your own merits to get into the wedding party and to stay there. So Michael Green is a commentator who holds this view, and he says this, it seems clear that the generous king not only provided the feast free for the wedding of of the son, not only invited everyone to it, but also provided beautiful festal robes for all to wear. In this way, the poor need not be ashamed of their rags, and the rich have no right to be proud of their dinner jackets or gowns. There are overtones of the prophet Isaiah here, who said, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. That is the human predicament. We are literally not fit to be seen before God, let alone enjoy the feast of his kingdom. But the prophet had already found the solution. Isaiah said, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. Is that good? In this view of what Jesus is laying out here, those who understand this meaning are pointing to what happens when we trust Christ. That is, his righteousness becomes ours. We clothe ourselves through faith, and God sees us as arrayed in Christ's righteousness in which he will never turn anyone away from his party uh, who knows Christ's righteousness. That's good. I like that interpretation. Do you? The second interpretation is this that the wedding clothes represent good deeds that are evidence of true disciples. That is true disciples. Again, no, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter my uh, kingdom, but only those who obey the will of the Father. So in this view, it's, it's the evidence that we are truly Jesus' disciples. So N.T. Wright is, is uh, one who would uh, advocate for this. I want you to listen. This is a little extended uh, section from him hear him. He says this parable, he says, we want to hear a nice story about God throwing the party open to everyone. We want, as people now fashionably say, to be inclusive, to let everyone in. We don't want to know about judgment on the wicked or about demanding standards of holiness or about weeping and gnashing of teeth for that matter. We want to hear that everyone is all right exactly as they are that God loves us as we are and doesn't want us to change. But actually, nobody believes that God doesn't want uh, everyone to stay exactly as they are. God loves serial killers and child molesters. God loves ruthless and arrogant businessmen. And he loves manipulative mothers who damage their children's emotions for life. 
But the point of God's love is that he wants them to change. He hates what they're doing and the effect it has on everyone else and themselves too. Ultimately, if he's a good God, he cannot allow that sort of behavior and that sort of person, if they don't change, to remain forever in the party he's throwing for his son. And so he concludes with this. The point of the story is that Jesus is telling the truth, the truth that political and religious leaders often like to hide. That is the truth that God's kingdom is a kingdom in which love and justice and truth and mercy and holiness all reign unhindered. They are the clothes you need to wear for the wedding. And if you refuse to put them on, you are saying you don't want to stay at the party. That is the reality. If we don't have the courage to say so, we are deceiving ourselves and everyone who listens to us. So there's two views. The robe represents Christ's righteousness that is given to us freely through, through faith, or the robe represents our willingness to submit to Christ and honor him and obey him uh, because he is a good Lord. What do you think? I'm glad I don't have to choose because I'm not going to. I think the answer is yes, these wedding clothes. Uh, man, are, are, well, let's put it like this. In all three of the parables we've looked at today, Like Psalm 2, they warn us to honor the Son with our lives lest we suffer judgment. And at the same time, all three of these parables, like Psalm 2, hold out the invitation for all who want to find refuge in him. Whatever we've done, wherever we've been, whoever we are, the invitation, come and find refuge in the Son. There is more than enough grace to be found in Jesus. This is the message uh, that we see in in, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. It's by grace you have been saved, not by works, so that no one can boast. But we are God's workmanship prepared in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Both are true. So let me just finish with this. Good news for you. God has a party that he wants you to be invited to. He wants you to be there. And no one in this room has to be God's enemies. Will you kiss the son? Will you submit yourself to him? He'll give us help along the way. It's not all up to us. He gives us his Holy Spirit. But we remember these things. So I want to ask, where are you in the story? I want to give you just a moment. We're going to pause and be quiet and think about this. Uh, And then we're going to come to the table. Lord Jesus, you are the son. And we come and we bow before you and we kiss you today and we, we give our lives in submission to you. We, we, thank, we thank you, Lord, for your generosity, your joy, your extravagant invitation to any and all who would be a part of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would give us willing spirits, uphold us with a willing spirit, create in us a clean heart,
oh God. Renew a right spirit within us. God, thank you for your uh, unlimited patience and also your, your uh, clear truth to us. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have taken upon yourself the judgment that we deserved. And we come to your table today and we celebrate that. And we pray that you would renew us and give us strength so that we might serve you with a full heart and gratitude for all that you have done for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you, if you know him, to come to the Lord's table. <clears throat> this table reminds us that, that Jesus knew that when he came, he would be treated like the second son who did not do the father's will. That he would be treated as if he were the wicked tenants uh, who refused to care for, for what God had given to them. Jesus came knowing that he would be treated as one who refused the invitation to the party that was actually for him. This reminds us that his, his body was broken, his blood was shed so that we might come into the party, that we might have experience, that we might be reconciled to God, that we might live for him. If you know that, come to this table. It might be the first time for you or the bazillionth time. If you're not there yet, if you don't know about this Jesus and you're not willing to submit your life to him, um, just watch as a bunch of people come to this table and acknowledge before us all and before God that, that we don't take of this because of any worth in ourselves. It's not that we're better than anyone. In fact, we need, coming to this table is, is recognition that we need grace more than anyone. But let's come with joy. The, the host of the party invites you to celebrate together. Amen? Amen.